Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's get those Bibles out and be turning to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to rip off nine verses right here in just a moment. You need to be looking at Genesis chapter 4 and be ready to read those verses along with me. And as you're turning to Genesis 4, let me say how great it is to see everybody this uh, fine morning, kind of an overcast and gloomy morning outside, but it is bright and sunny inside, and that's evident in the hearty way in which you have participated in the worship this morning and singing these songs, and we most certainly are on our way to Canaan's land, which means that everything that we're trying to do here, especially today, is designed to help us along in that journey. And particularly as we get ready to talk about some things from God's Word for these next few minutes, we're going to talk about things that I think are just critically important as we think about our journey and our journey together toward that promised land. Let's think about that in Genesis chapter 4. I'm reading here beginning in verse number 1. In Genesis 4 and in verse 1, the Bible says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son named Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore another son, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? She stopped right there. Every year in November, the Oxford English Dictionary announces its selection for the word of the year. A word that has gone from being practically non-existent to all of a sudden being very much a part of the public's everyday vernacular, so much so that the Oxford Dictionary has no choice but to recognize it as an accepted word in the lexicon. In 2005, for example, the word of the year was podcast. Think about what a new word that was at the time, but now here we are 11 years later and it's such a regular part of our speech. In 2009, the word of the year was the word unfriend with all of the increase in social media activity. This year, the hyphenated term post-truth was recognized as the word of the year despite my daughter's best efforts to get the word flocklet to be the word of the year. And for those of you that don't speak two-year-old, that's Hattie's way of trying to say chocolate. In 2013, though, I was really interested that the word that was selected as the word of the year was the word selfie. Selfie. You know about selfies, don't we? We take selfies. We use that word selfie. We hear that word selfie a lot. Anytime you pull that smartphone out and you hold the camera up to your face, what are you doing? You're going to take a selfie. 
And everybody's taking selfies these days. Young people take selfies all the time. Even older people are taking selfies. Tiffany, we went to the nursing home a couple of weeks ago, and she was teaching her 93-year-old grandmother how to take a selfie. Everybody's in the selfie business these days. Now, I sure don't want to suggest that taking a picture of yourself is wrong necessarily. But that term selfie... It is definitely fitting of a society and a culture that is becoming more and more self-obsessed and self-centered. Where the number one concern predominantly these days is me. Look at me. Listen to me. Hear what I have to say. I'm not so much concerned about you or you or the other people out there. It's about me. We are living in a selfie culture. And so it is, I believe, very, very appropriate that that word was accepted into the lexicon and into the common use. However, with all due respect to the folks at the Oxford English Dictionary, I'm not so sure that that word selfie is so new. If you look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9, I think you'll see that the idea of self-obsession, that it is as old as Cain. He asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? You know, be concerned with others, Lord. Are you kidding? I don't worry about other people. It's about me. Cain may very well have been the original poster boy for the selfie because he was not interested in the well-being of his brother. His only concern was for himself. What I want to suggest to you this morning, though, is that the way of Cain, the way of the selfie, that that is utterly lethal to New Testament Christianity. Because, think about it, if a church is infected with this virus, with the Cain flu, if you will, then that means there will only be an interest in self, which means as well a failure to be interested in my brothers and my sisters in Christ. In the Bible, in the New Testament, we are called to care for one another. We are called to be concerned with others and their walk with the Lord. Particularly if one of our own, if they fall away from the Lord, his or her brothers and sisters need to be there to rescue them and to bring their soul back to Jesus. We are called to be able to not say, Am I my brother's keeper? We are called to be able to say, I am my brother's keeper. In fact, that is the very opposite of the self-possessed, narcissistic view that our society is increasingly taking as it follows in the way of Cain. And that's why this morning, I want to talk to you about being interested in your brethren. And this morning, ladies, as I use the term brethren, I hope you understand that I'm using that term in the way that the New Testament predominantly uses it. That term brethren usually denotes, it's a neutral term to mean brothers and sisters. Talking about our brothers and our sisters in the Lord. And I'm going to be concerned about their spiritual welfare. What do you do, for example, whenever someone's attendance patterns start to become, start to become spotty? What do you do whenever someone's life and their conduct outside of this building, Monday through Saturday, doesn't seem to be matching up with the life that they are presenting when they come into this building on Sunday? What do you do whenever someone is, maybe they are faithful in their attendance, and maybe it does seem like they're trying to live the Christian life, 
But they've committed sin. And to make matters worse, they don't even recognize that they are in sin. What do you do whenever a brother or a sister is discouraged and is showing some signs of spiritual weakness? And maybe they're starting to even say some things like, I just don't think I can do this anymore. I just don't have the heart to do this. I just don't think I'm going to make it to heaven. How can we help each other? One of the characteristics of strong churches is when its members are selfless and they are watching for the spiritual well-being of one another. A strong church is made up of people who have a sense of, of ought, a sense of responsibility and obligation to their brothers and their sisters in the Lord. That I am going to be my brother's keeper. I am going to be my sister's keeper. And that is exactly what I am pressing for us this morning. And the place for that to start, I believe, is to just establish a good biblical foundation. We need to just establish the New Testament pattern here that teaches the responsibility that we have to care for one another. Because the truth is, even as I begin talking about this this morning, the truth is there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, you know what, I tell you, I think people just need to mind their own business. That's what I think needs to happen here. I don't want somebody calling me if I miss church. I don't want somebody calling me out on my behavior if I'm in sin. Everybody needs to just mind their own business. Everybody just needs to take care of themselves. That is a dangerous way of thinking. Or, you know, maybe even more misguided is whenever people think, well, that's the preacher's job. Here's brother so-and-so over here. He's in sin. He's not living right. What we need to do is we need to send brother Josh, that's what we pay him for, we need to send him over to talk to him and he take care of that. He's going to encourage, he's going to admonish, he's going to help that brother to repent. And as a result of that kind of thinking, what happens is is we kind of turn the preacher into some kind of a pastor. We turn it into some kind of denominational idea of a pastor because being the pastor means you care for the sheep. I am submitting to you this morning that caring for the sheep, number one, I'm not the pastor, not going to be the pastor, but secondly, caring for the sheep, that is everybody's job. That is your job. If you are a child of God, caring for the other sheep in this flock, that is your duty. And I'll show you that in the New Testament. Run in your Bibles with me in Galatians chapter 6. Let's just map out here what the Bible says about us being accountable to one another. In Galatians chapter 6, this is one of the best places in Scripture, I think. I use this verse often because I think it's just one of the most powerful places in the Bible that talks about our care one for another within the body of Christ. In Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, your Bible maybe even has a note that that word brothers there means brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me add to that what's said in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes to this church that he, he loved so much, and there were so many good things to say about the church at Philippi, but maybe one of the things that they needed to do a little bit better in, to improve in, and some words of encouragement needed to be said about, is in this particular area right here. In Philippians 2 and in verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. Well, that's, that's basically the anti-selfie verse of the New Testament, isn't it? Don't be all wrapped up in yourself. Instead, be concerned with others. In fact, to really drive that point home, who does Paul cite in the very next verse as the consummate example of this? Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who came here, emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, died on a cross. Why? Because He was interested in others. He was interested in you and in me. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 now. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul gives these instructions to the Christians in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm looking at verse 14. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, Paul says, We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul just identifies specifically some particular groups within a congregation that are going to need some help, going to need some encouragement, going to need some admonition from time to time as they walk with the Lord. Look now in the book of James, please, in James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, I think all of us are probably familiar with what James says in verse 16 about prayer. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. That's wonderful. But look down in verse 19 of that chapter. In James 5 and in verse 19, James says there, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now this is really just the tip of the iceberg, but let me add just one more passage in this connection in the tiny book of Jude. In the book of Jude, look now near the, the end of that letter. Jude's only one chapter. In Jude, look with me in verse 20. In Jude, verse 20, Jude says, But you, beloved... Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Those two verses sound like grow, be strong, be a great disciple. And I think all of us would look at those two verses and say, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. That's exactly what I want to be. But look at what Jude says that those kinds of growing strong disciples, look at what they're now going to do. Verse 22, they're going to have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, they're going to save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others they're going to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Did you notice that there? That the people who are doing verses 20 and 21, they're going to be strong, committed disciples who can then help the ones who are weak and who are struggling in verses 22 and 23. These verses, all of these verses say, we need to have a care and concern for the spiritual welfare of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And yes, I understand that there are passages like Hebrews 13 and verse 17 They give a very special charge to elders in a local church to keep watch over the souls of that flock. But in no way, even even with those instructions that are given to elders, in no way does that diminish each individual Christian's responsibility to watch out for the souls of their brothers and sisters in the Lord. In fact, in a congregation that is elderless, how much more do these passages speak to us? I've given you five passages here, and there's many more we can add to this list, but five passages to you 
and to me that say we are to be our brother's keeper. The question is, how do you do that? That's the really tough question. The easy thing is to stand up here and to cite a bunch of verses and to say, you need to be your brother's keeper, you need to be your sister's keeper, but how do you actually do it? How do you actually follow through and do that in the right kind of way? You know, we've all seen situations where someone, a brother or a sister, they were in error, they were in sin, they were not being what they ought to be as a child of God. And then some very thoughtless brother comes along in the most thoughtless and in the most insensitive way, just bludgeons them with the Bible all over their head. And as a result, they just make a very perfect mess of a delicate situation and they end up running that person off from the Lord permanently. It's just a disaster when that happens. And by that same token, we've all also probably seen situations where a brother or a sister in Christ very slowly but very gradually drifted away from the Lord and and nobody did anything. Nobody did anything. That person drifted away. Now, they, nobody hurt their feelings. Nobody made the situation worse in that way. But you know what? Nobody helped them either. You see, neither one of those kinds of situations, neither one of those extremes are going to be helpful. Neither one of those are acceptable. We cannot use these passages, these passages and many more, to be somehow a license for mean and abrasive behavior towards our brothers and sisters. Nor can we use these passages as an excuse to just sit idly by while our brothers and sisters drift off into hell. There has to be a better way, hasn't there? And I believe there is a better way. Would you find with me in the Old Testament again in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 25? In Proverbs chapter 25, this is really, I believe, this is the brother brother's keeper passage. This is the verse that I think really helps us in fulfilling our obligations as brothers and sisters in the Lord and to be able to fulfill those obligations effectively. If we'll keep these ideas at the forefront of our mind, I think we can do that brother's keeper stuff effectively. In Proverbs 25, read with me in verses 11 and 12. Proverbs 25, verse 11, Solomon says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Verse 12, Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. A word fitly spoken, verse 11. Received by a listening ear, verse 12. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? When we go to our brother or we go to our sister, that we're going to say a word fitly spoken, and then it's going to be received with receptive ears. I believe this passage helps us to see that in order for us to be our brother's keeper, what we need is we need the right person who will do the right thing at the right time in the right way. That's what Proverbs 25, 11 and 12 is calling for. And that's not original with me, but I believe it hits the nail exactly on the head. That if I'm in sin, if I am in error, if I use bad judgment, if I as the preacher get up here and just say something that's wrong, if I'm showing signs of spiritual fatigue or spiritual weakness, if I maybe just completely fall away from the Lord, I need the right person to come and do the right thing at the right time in the right way. Let me just break that out in those four directions this morning. Let's start with what it means to be the right person. Who is the right person to confront someone? Well, ideally, 
And I do want to underscore that word ideally because things aren't always going to work out just exactly perfectly the way that we want them to. But ideally, the right person is going to be someone who knows them. Someone who has relationship with that erring brother or that erring sister. And why is that important? Well, why is that such a big deal? Well, that's a big deal because confrontation is difficult. It's hard to confront somebody. When you come to somebody and you say, maybe even as gently as you possibly can, you say, hey, you messed up. Hey, you didn't do what you should have been doing there. You're wrong. The way you're living and what you're doing, it's just sinful. You're not living the way that the Bible teaches and the way that the Lord wants. What happens many times when you do that? What happens many times is people get get real defensive. Put up just a big barrier there. Get defensive. They maybe even start pushing back a little bit. They turn it up to DEFCON 5 and it gets heated and it gets ugly in a real hurry. But you know what? If someone who knows that person, if they come and see them, someone who cares about them, someone that they know loves them and they have some history together, they've got some rapport, they've got relationship there, then the greater the chances are that that person will actually hear what is being said. And yes, what's being said, it still may hurt a little bit. It still may make the conversation a little tense and a little bit edgy. But when we know that someone has our best interests in heart, that they really do, they care about our soul, that's what this is about. Because we have relationship with that person, then that provides a strong basis for that person to be able to hear that rebuke. Proverbs bears that out. If you're still here in Proverbs, just turn over a page to Proverbs 27. In Proverbs 27, look in verse 6. In Proverbs 27 and in verse 6, Solomon says here, Proverbs 27 verse 6, Faithful, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I think an awful lot about the first part of that verse. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Whenever I read that verse, I always immediately think of Nathan the prophet. You remember Nathan the prophet, don't you? Nathan the prophet who delivered one of the most difficult rebukes of all time when he called a king out publicly in front of the royal court, called him out for murder and for adultery. That would have been tough. And you know, whenever we talk about Nathan, we talk about those events, we always talk about how, how courageous Nathan was to, to go there and to say what needed to be said. Talk about how he must have had you know, ice water running in his veins and he was just steely-eyed while he did that. But what we forget to notice about that is that Nathan was not just some random prophet that God sent to the palace that day to talk to King David. No, Nathan and David, they actually went way back together. That confrontation that you read about in 2 Samuel chapter 12, that's not the first time that Nathan and David have ever met before. Nathan is the prophet. Do you remember in 2 Samuel 7? Nathan is the prophet that David shared his dreams with. David told Nathan, I have a dream. I have this dream that I want to build this beautiful house for God. I want to build a temple for God. You know, that's not the kind of thing that you just disclose and you just start telling to random strangers. People will think you're weird for saying stuff like that. That tells me that David and Nathan, they had a strong relationship with one another. 
In fact, it was such a strong relationship that Nathan is later instructed by God to go back and to tell David, no, sorry David, but you're not going to build that temple. You're not going to be the one to do that. Your son, he's going to build this temple. I appreciate the consideration, but your son's going to be the one to do it and he's going to do it long after you're gone and dead. And I imagine that would have been hard for Nathan to have to say. To walk right back in there and to say, David, I actually, you're not going to get to fulfill your dream. But you know what? David hears what Nathan says. And he accepts what Nathan says. And is thankful for what Nathan says. You know what that says to me? That says to me the fact that those words came from a friend, from someone that he was close to, someone that he trusted, it made it easier easier for David to receive that correction in 2 Samuel 7. It made it easier as well for him to hear that hard and much needed rebuke in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan was the right person because he and David had strong relationship. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now what's the takeaway for you and me here? Well, the takeaway for you and me is is we just want to build stronger relationships with our brothers and our sisters in the Lord. Somebody might say, here's a brother over here who's, who's, who's in sin. Somebody might say, well, I'm, I, I'm not the right person to go and talk to him. I don't really know him that well, and so I'm not the right guy to go and talk to him. Okay, I understand about that, but my question is, what are you doing to be the right person? It's not enough for you to just excuse yourself because, well, you're not particularly close to that individual. No, what are you doing to get close to that individual? Could you pick up the phone? Could you send a text message, shoot an email? Could you invite that person out for coffee one day? Could you make it a point when you see them here at services to go and to talk to them? Could you maybe arrange to include them in some kind of activity outside of these services? What are you doing to strengthen that relationship with your brothers and your sisters in Christ? All of those passages that we read a moment ago from the New Testament... All of those passages within them, they imply that there is a depth of relationship between brothers and sisters in the family of God. And that when I then go, I see one of my family members, they're down, they're struggling, they're not being what they ought to be. I can then go to them. And I can put my arm around them. And I can lovingly say to them, Hey, I want to talk to you about what's going on. I see some things that are going on in your life. I, you, 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 you made a mess of things over here. And I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk about some things that maybe we can do better together as we walk in the Lord. That's what it takes to be the right person. And of course, as we're being the right person, that means secondly, we're going to be doing the right thing. And can I just say right here at the jumping off point that the right thing might not necessarily be telling. I think that's immediately where our mind goes when it comes to doing the right thing to an erring brother. Is we got to go and we got to tell them something. So often we think it's just all about our our words, telling somebody how wrong they are, citing all kinds of Bible verses, quoting Scripture to them, and showing them where they need to fix things and make it right. But I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes, sometimes it's not always about words first. Look with me in John 21. I'll give you a great example of what I'm talking about. In John chapter 21, you want to watch a master at this? You just pay attention to Jesus. In John chapter 21, we read here about Jesus and Peter. And what we are seeing in John chapter 21 is the very awkward position that comes whenever you are Peter 
and you have denied the Lord three times, and now here you are face to face with Him. In John chapter 21, look with me beginning in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and the sons of Zebedee and two others of His disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to Him, Well, we'll go fishing with you. Verse 4 now. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered Him, No. He said to them, Then cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it. And they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. It's the Lord's the one who's talking to us. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for the work and he threw himself into the sea. He swims back to shore. Verse 9 now. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore, brought in all these fish. Verse 12 now. Jesus said to them, Come. Come and have breakfast. Verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. And they had breakfast together. I want you to see here, I want you to notice, that Jesus did not immediately start rebuking Peter and start just riding him real hard about all of those awful denials that had occurred just a few nights previous to this. Jesus did not just immediately launch into Peter. I know what you did. Don't think that I've forgotten about that, buddy boy. I can't believe that you would deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. You don't have any courage. You don't have any temerity about you. You're just a coward. You need to repent. You need to ask God for forgiveness immediately. No. You know what Jesus saw? Jesus saw that what they needed was they needed to have some time to just be together for a little while. And to maybe just sit down and eat some breakfast together. And they did. And after eating together, that helped to kind of break the ice a little bit. And after breaking that ice, Jesus and Peter then have that very famous conversation. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so he said to him, feed my lambs. You know the story there. Jesus asked the question a couple of more times, and a couple of more times Peter repeats and reaffirms his love. I want you to see in all of that how Jesus worked toward that conversation. Took some steps beforehand before He launched into this conversation with Peter. And that was a conversation that helped Peter. It's a conversation that opened the door for Him to be restored and for Jesus to say that, Peter, you will be useful to me and my kingdom. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that sometimes the right thing to do, sometimes the right thing to do isn't just telling people where they're wrong. Sometimes the right thing is to maybe just say, Hey, I want you to come over to my house and let's have dinner together first and and then we'll talk about some things. Maybe the right thing to do is to just send a, a handwritten note. There's just something special about getting a handwritten note from someone. Maybe the right thing is to get a private message from someone on Facebook instead of posting publicly about it for everybody to see. Maybe the right thing to do is instead of a big giant confrontation where we preach at them, Maybe what needs to happen is a conversation where we listen to them. 
And as we're talking with a brother or a sister who is in error, it may very well be that what they have to say is nothing but a bunch of hot air. It may be nothing but a bunch of lame excuses and lame justifications. But you know what? Sometimes the right thing to do is just let them unpack all of that. Just let them say everything they want to say and just listen until it all winds down and finally then we can begin with showing them from the Word of God what they need to hear. The right thing I'm saying to you can be more than just words. Sometimes it can be just our presence. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that we would actually just show up. The fact that we are there. Sometimes that speaks volumes. That says, I care about you. The fact that I drove all the way out here to your house. I'm here. I'm concerned about you. I want to help you. The takeaway here is that we need to be thinking before we go into speaking. We need to think about What else can I do before I launch into all of this stuff that I think this person needs to hear from me? What can I maybe do to to break the ice a little bit, to to, lighten the intensity of the moment? Is there some building up that I can do? Are there some words that maybe I could say that would build this individual up before I get into some of that hard stuff? Can I ask some pointed questions? Can I do some listening before I start with all of the telling? That's what it means to do the right thing. And that, of course, is all wrapped up in doing those things at the right time. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it's a famous chapter where Solomon talks about there's a there's time for everything. And in verse 7 of Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says that there is a time to keep silent, but there is also a time to speak. Boy, oh boy, don't you wish you just always knew when was the right time to do those things. When's the right time to be silent and when's the right time to speak. That can be hard, can't it? That can be really hard. In fact, in many ways, I think this one right here, I think this is the most difficult part of the entire equation. You know, when? When should I go to that brother? When should I go to that sister? When should I approach them about this elephant in the room? You know, timing is just, it's so critical. It's everything here. Think about Nathan. Nathan waited at least nine months before he went and talked to David and rebuked him. And he only went to David at that time because God told him to. God said, all right, go. Go talk to David about this. Sometimes I'll confess to you, sometimes I wish God would just do that with me. Just tell me, hey, now's the time. Go, get up, go talk to that person right now. But we don't have that kind of direct guidance from above today. And so what do we need to do? We'll need to pray. We'll need to do a lot of praying. We'll need to pray for some wisdom. James 1 verse 5 talks about praying for wisdom and God will supply that. We need to pray to the Lord, Lord, is this the right time to do this? Will that brother or that sister be receptive and open to what I have to say? Is this even a place and a time where they're going to be able to hear the things that I want to say to them? Where they're not going to be distracted with all kinds of other things going on? I remember sometime back there was a, a, a brother who, he needed to be talked to. And some folks had been planning to talk to him. And somebody suggested, how about we just talk to him after Wednesday night? And I said, that is not the best time. I know that brother's work schedule. And I know that when he comes in here on Wednesday, I mean, it's all he can do just to get here. And he's tired and worn out and exhausted. And he's got kids, him and his wife, they need to get the kids back and get them into bed and get them ready for school. This just is not the right time immediately after services on a Wednesday night. Just need to recognize when it's not the best time or the best place. And so we want to pray about that, don't we? We want to pray, Lord, help me to find the right time. And as we do that, as we're asking the Lord's help in finding the right time, can I suggest to you, 
that there needs to be a bias on our part. There needs to be a bias for action. Sometimes, because we are so uncertain about the right time, what happens is, is we end up sitting on our hands and we end up doing nothing. Because, well, it just doesn't seem like this is the right time. Well, guess what? If that's the way you are, you're never going to find the right time. With me in Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers chapter 25, here's a story about a confrontation that I think it really just kind of sits up and gets our attention. gets my attention, at least. In Numbers 25, this is about the Israelites and how they had gotten involved in the sins of sexual immorality that was associated with the worship of the gods of the Moabites. In Numbers chapter 25, look with me in verse 6. Numbers 25, verse 6, Behold, one of the people of Israel came, and he brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so this Israelite man, he brings a pagan woman back to his tent in flagrant violation of the law of Moses, and everybody sees it. Everybody sees exactly what this guy is doing. There's no question about what this guy has done. And what did all of those people do? Well, the text seems to indicate that they all, they all just kind of stood there. Some of them stood there. Some of them kind of wringing their hands. Some of them were even weeping a little bit. Well, I don't know if this is the right time. I don't know if this is the right place for us to say something or to do something about this brother. Look in the very next verse. A guy by the name of Phineas, he said, you know what? This is the right time. Verse 7, when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, He rose and he left the congregation and he took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I am not trying to advocate the use of this passage to use physical violence Against your brother or your sister if they're in sin. Don't pick up a spear and go running at them in order to get their attention. Not advocating that. But you know what this passage does say? This passage says that we don't want to get caught standing around, weeping at the door, and never do anything. Instead, like Phineas, we want to have a bias for action. That that is our inclination, is to act and to do something. And in case you're kind of wondering, well, I don't know that that guy actually did the right thing. Well, look at what the Lord says about Phineas. Look in verse 11. In verse 11, the Lord says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, he has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. God says, Phineas, he did do the right thing and he did it at the right time. Phineas is a wonderful example of someone who seized the moment. Now don't let some uncertainty about, I just don't know if this is the right time to go and say something to them. No, don't let that keep you from doing something about a terrible situation. When a brother is in sin, when a sister is away from the Lord, that is a critical time. We need to go to DEFCON 5. We need to be thinking of what we can do. Find the right time. And as we're looking for that right time, as we're praying for wisdom, 
as we combine that with our God-given common sense, with the general principles that we have in Scripture, we want to be ready to spring to action to help, to get that brother or sister back on the pathway of righteousness. And as we do that, we want to make sure finally, we want to make sure that we're going to do that in the right way. In Ephesians chapter 4, please. In Ephesians chapter 4, if, if Proverbs 25, verses 11 and 12, if, if that's the key verse from the Old Testament, then, then I would submit that Ephesians 4.15 is the key verse from the New Testament. This passage in context, it does speak about teaching truth in the body of Christ as opposed to false doctrine. But it does set before us, even, even within that context, it sets before us a, a very broad principle that I believe applies in every human interaction. In Ephesians 4, in verse 15, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Paul points out that what we say matters. That's really important. We must say the right thing. We must speak the truth, Paul says. If we go to a brother or sister and we gloss over their sin by saying all kinds of trite little cliches like, oh, everybody does it. God will understand. You're only human. When we say those kinds of things, what we are doing is we are helping no one. And so Paul is not content for us to gloss over the truth. Need to speak the truth. But furthermore, not just to speak the truth, Paul wants that truth spoken in a certain way. In love. And that means that I'm going to consider not just what I'm going to say, but I'm going to consider how I say it. Not only am I going to give some consideration to the words that I'll use from the Word of God, but I need to consider as well my, my, my tone of voice. I need to consider my, my, my body language, how I'm presenting myself. I need to consider the look on my face, my countenance, my disposition. I'm going to think about the whole package here so that I can then confront my brother or my sister and I will have say things in a way that it conveys a spirit, a spirit of love, not a spirit of arrogance, not a spirit of you know, self righteousness and haughtiness. Certainly not a spirit of oh, I got you now, oh, I got you, buddy boy, and I'm going to tell you all about it. No, being my brother's keeper, it means approaching that person in such a way that it just exudes and it demonstrates, I love you, I care about you, I'm concerned about you, I want to help you. We're going to speak the truth in love. And let me just say right here that we can get all that other stuff right, but then if we speak the truth in an unloving way, then that's going to just ruin the whole rescue attempt. It's more than likely going to just fail the whole operation. You've probably known of people who were members of the Lord's church and they weren't living right, had sin in their life, did something that was wrong. But then some harsh and abrasive Christian, they came along and just absolutely just crushed them. I mean, just squashed those people flat. All in the name of, well, somebody had to tell them the truth. And then they inflicted some scars in those people's lives. And those scars that were inflicted, though certainly not an excuse for not doing what's right, those scars then become just a huge barrier to them people ever returning to Jesus Christ. You know, let's be candid. If a Christian isn't living right, if I'm not living right, 99% of the time, I know what you're going to say before you ever even come to me and say it. I know if I've not been faithful in my attendance. 
I know if I'm posting stuff on Facebook that is inappropriate and in Christ's life. I know when there's unrepented sin in my life. And so when you come to me and you come to talk about that, I know what you're going to say. What I'm waiting for is I'm waiting to see how you're going to say it. And I'm wanting to see, will your attitude, will it give me the excuse that I'm looking for to push the Lord away and push His people away even more? Or will your attitude express the truth in love in such a way that it draws me back to the Lord and back to His people? The takeaway here is obvious, and that is I need to be thinking about my attitude. I need to be thinking about my demeanor. I need to be checking my ego at the door when I approach that brother or that sister. I need to realize that my sole motivation here is I want to help this precious soul to be right in the Lord and be ready to meet Him in Judgment Day. That's what it means to be the right person, doing the right thing, at the right time, in the right way. Now, I guess I ought to reiterate, I don't think it's wrong to take a selfie. Young people, don't leave here thinking, Josh said don't take selfies anymore. No, I'm sure that would ruin your entire week if I said that. But I will say without hesitation that it is wrong to be self-obsessed like Cain was so long ago. Because despite what Cain told himself, and despite what Cain told the Lord, Cain should have been his brother's keeper. Please don't leave here today as we've talked about some of these ideas and some of these solutions. Please don't think that this is some kind of automatic formula that if you do this, one, two, three, four, bang, you're going to see a restoration every single time. No. If you've ever been involved in approaching a brother or a sister who's in sin, you know it's usually a whole lot more complicated than that. And you know as well that doing these kinds of things is very, very difficult. In fact, of all the things that the Lord expects His people to do, and maybe I ought to just say this, you're not doing this kind of stuff. You're not watching out for the souls of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to repent of that. You do. You take it seriously. But this is tough stuff. It's really tough stuff. But you know what? You and I, we need to love each other so much that we're willing even to do hard things because that's how much we care for each other's souls. There's a story that's told of a fellow who was a member of the church but who began to miss some services here and there. He started missing on Sunday night. Started missing on Wednesday night. Before you know it, he was, he was missing a lot on Sunday morning. He was just becoming more and more irregular in his attendance. And I'll just say, church attendance is not the sum total of Christianity, but many times it is an indicator of what is going on in a person's life. This guy wasn't coming to church. Suddenly one day there was a, there was a knock on his front door. And he opened the door and to his surprise... There was one of his brethren from church. And it was kind of awkward for a moment there, and it was kind of kind of strained a little bit, but, but it was really cold outside. It was kind of a day like today. And so he couldn't just be a jerk and you know, leave him standing out there in the cold. And so he said, hey, why don't you just go ahead and come on in? Why don't you come on in? Let's sit down. We'll go, we'll go sit down over here by the fire and we'll get warmed up. And so he came in. They sat down by the fire and sat there for a few minutes in utter silence. Not a word was said between those two brothers. Finally, this brother who had come to visit, he ended up taking the tongs that were sitting there by the fireplace, and he reached into the fire, and he got a gleaming ember out, bright red, and he removed it from the fire, and he set it there right on the hearth. 
For a moment or two, that little ember there, it continued to just blaze brightly, bright red and orange. Very quickly, just a matter of a minute or so, it began to die down. Soon there was no flame at all. And that bright glow was replaced with an ashen gray. And within a few minutes, it was completely black, completely hardened, and completely cold. Then that brother who was visiting grabbed the tongs again and picked that ember back up, set it back into the fire, where instantly it began to blaze forth once again. That brother who had been unfaithful, he sat there and observed every moment of that, and immediately he understood. And he said to that brother who had come to visit him, he said, I'll see you on Sunday. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Being the right person, doing the right thing, at the right time, in the right way. My prayer is that the Lord will bless the members of this local body to have that kind of care and concern and love for one another so that we can all leave here and we can truly say, I am my brother's keeper. Now in just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. It's been said before, but there is no scriptural command to sing an invitation song. But you know what? One of the reasons that we do that practically at every service is because that song is a way for us to let people in this building know that we do care and that we are concerned. We are concerned about the condition of the souls of every person in this building. We sometimes call that invitation song, we call it a song of encouragement. And I think that's an appropriate title. Because it is a way, it is an outlet for us to express the concern that we have for one another's spiritual well-being. Which is why I'll say right now, brother or sister, if you are away from the Lord, if there is sin in your life, if you're not fully devoted to Jesus like you ought to be, then you need to know that we're singing this song for you. We are. We're singing it for you because we care about you. Because we love you. We want to be your brother's keeper. We want to be your sister's keeper. We want you to come home. And more importantly, your heavenly Father wants you to come home. He wants you to come to Him in a spirit of humility and repentance. And He would love nothing more than to forgive you and welcome you back into the fold. Maybe I ought to back up maybe a step or two. It may be that you're sitting here this morning and you're not a part of the family of God. And you need to know right now that as we sing this song, we're singing this song for you as well. We're singing this song to encourage you, to provoke you, to stimulate you, to respond, to access the blood of Jesus Christ so that your sins can be forgiven. That happens in the waters of baptism where your sins are washed away and you come up out of that water something new. A Christian, here's the neat thing about that, God adds you to His family, and you get a whole bunch of brothers and sisters that you never had before. Brothers and sisters who will seek to encourage you and to help you, just as you seek to help and encourage even then. What a wonderful privilege it is to be a part of God's family. We can help you this morning to serve the Lord and to be a part of that family. Why don't you take advantage of this opportunity right now? Do it by coming forward and expressing your desires while we stand and while we sing.